Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so um, last time we were talking about the effects of alcohol. Most of you know about these things, so it's things like blood vessels dilate. In fact, that's what leads to people that are chronic drinkers. I mean, like, you know, really professionals. You know, the red nose, gin blossoms, as they call it, right? Um, you get lots of heat because of that, uh, even though it makes you feel warm, right? Um, you know, uh, your amount of REM goes down, and this is one of the explanations for if you have a, you sleep, you have drunk sleep, but then you wake up and you feel tired. Well, that's because you didn't have any REM or not enough REM. Right? So in that case, uh, the next night you get what's called REM rebound. Um, unless you keep drinking, uh, then you know, just, you know, chronically run out of REM. You get more talkative, you talk higher uh, and louder. The pitch actually does go up. It's measurable. Um, check that I'm recording this here. Yep. Okay. Um, during the absorption phase, you get the euphoria and excretion. You get uh, lethargy or lethargy. Perhaps that. Again, that's the sort of when people kind of get. You get a decrease in visual acuity, which is something that's really noticeable if you've had a lot to drink. Like you can actually see that the world. In fact, if you had really, really enough to drink, like way too much, things would be blurry, which is what visual acuity is, right? How blurry something is. Um, but there even will be a decrease after a small amount, and you can kind of test yourself on this with something that, like I said the other day, uh, video games are a great example here. First-person shooter video games are a lot harder to play, um, even after a couple of beers, which was my excuse when my uh, uh, daughter's boyfriend beat me at Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. And happily, Madeline, she just totally just chimed in. She said, Nathan, he's had a couple of beers. So, I mean, I, I, you know, he's actually just probably better than me. I didn't even pull up the excuse, I'm blind, which I've done. Um, or the, you know, real reaching one, and my son has autism. It has nothing to do with it, but I like just bringing it out. I said that to a class once. didn't actually know me and realized that, you know, I mean, it's not a joke that John has autism, it's just a thing. But I said once, no, I haven't marked your test yet. I'm blind and my son has autism. <laughs> like three people in the class realized I was kidding. Everybody else is like, that's weird that he's like that. But now I feel sorry for him. And the memory effects are really interesting here. Um, interesting in that, as I mentioned the other day, you might end up forgetting something, having like a brownout kind of thing. But then it comes back to you when you're drinking. Oh, I can't believe, like I said, I can't believe I hit up my boss's wife or something like that. Um, really bad memory effects are blackouts. Now these can be actually, you can actually get knocked out during these, like literally drink yourself to the point where you're knocked out. But it could also just be something where you literally don't, like parts of the night disappear. You know, how did I get here? That kind of thing. And I think some of us have either had that experience or we've watched someone have that experience. That's a pretty good indication you've had enough to drink. You should probably switch to, as I said, a delicious, perhaps a juice box. Um... There's a lot of questions here about that people talk about with, with alcohol. Um, and there's been a, a huge shift in how people behave over the last 30 years, but especially in the mid-80s and early 90s about drinking and driving. <coughs> it literally was socially acceptable to drink and drive. 
And now it's, we, we think about that now, and it would be as weird as one of us lighting up a cigarette in here right now. People don't drink and drive really very much. And people that do, we think of as idiots. Right? And I remember when I was in high school, which was between 1979 and 1984, early on, when we, because you know you go to high school dances for drinking, um, and people would drive to and from high school dances, they'd be drunk. And then suddenly, in about grade 11, <laughs> early 80s, 81, it was like no one did that anymore. It started to become something you didn't do, and you started to be seen as an idiot. Um, and nowadays, I mean, I remember my parents when I was a kid. They'd go out in the 70s, right? They'd go out somewhere. They'd come home, and my dad would wake me up, and he'd, he'd ask me who won the hockey game, who got the goals and the assists. And he was always like he could just smell the alcohol like a mile away. And within 15 years after that, they would go and they'd take a cab. But the world really changed, and there's a really good reason for this. Your reaction time increases uh, basically exponentially with every drink you've had. Like the curve, well, that's not what that curve is, looks a lot like that. You kind of need to be able to put the brakes on quickly when you're driving a car. So reaction time really matters. Um, there are perceptual effects, as I mentioned, the idea of visual acuity. Uh, also, even hearing and integrating stuff. Because it looks like one of the things that, that alcohol does, not only does it work on glutamate, but um, it may work as well. It also seems to work on GABA, which is inhibitory. We seem to have trouble integrating information. So putting stuff we hear together with stuff we see, which is really important when you're, say, driving a car. From what I understand, I've never driven. I've mentioned I'm blind. It is autism. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the driving. I did drive once. Once, my, my, my wife, we just got her driver's license. And Maddie was like three months old. She was in the back of the car. No, couldn't, must have been older than that. Maybe about eight months old. And we went to where they test you in London, Ontario. That's where we were living as a postdoc then. And they test you in this sort of course they have at the uh, transport or whatever. So Isabel says, get out, you're driving. Now, there's nobody there because it's just a, a test course. And it's, it's a Sunday morning. There's literally nobody there. And I thought, how hard can this be? <laughs> Really, I've played a lot of video games. <laughs> so I push on the gas, and I'm going about 30. Like, I'm not going very fast. I'm turning just fine. And I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll try that driver's test thing. You know, I'm clearly thinking that, and then thinking, no. no. The only thing I had trouble with was the braking. I assumed all brakes were digital, not analog. So when I went to stop, I just slammed on the brakes. <laughs> Because, you know, in the video games then, it was just the B button <laughs> that stopped you. No. So, I have driven more. The memory problems are going to be bad. Did I just, think about even moment to moment, did I just check my blind spot before you change lanes? You're not very steady. There's a the beautiful effect, and I mentioned this the other day, the old drunk test, which is, you know, put your hand, hand out. Touch your nose with your two fingers. Trivially easy if you're not hammered. Trivially easy if you haven't had like two drinks. So you're not as steady. You're, you're becoming sort of uncoordinated. And you've seen people that are really drunk. Then you see those guys, those guys, where are my keys? And the effects themselves last longer than when alcohol's in the system. Because of you being so tired and not having good sleep, even the next day, even if you are 
out of the excretion phase, and basically the alcohol is at such a low level, you're still going to have some of these effects. And this is worse for younger drivers. Well, older people have had more experience driving drugs. Let's just face the facts here. They've also had more experience driving other impaired ways, being upset, being distracted, um, you know, being really tired. The younger you are, the less chance you, you, you've had to have these kind of experiences. But even just drinking and driving, even having like a glass of wine with dinner and driving home from a restaurant, right? They haven't had that experience. And that's behavioral tolerance, knowing how to behave when you're drunk. So but you put all that together, and we get a real problem for the, the, really the younger you are. This is the probability um, between blood alcohol level and the risk of being involved in a traffic accident. These are old data from 1978, but they're no different really than today. So milligrams per kilogram, that's a 0.5. That's actually where they can kind of take your car away. That's about a 0.8. And you can see it actually, it starts to, the idea of point eight makes sense. See where the curve starts to go up? If you're blowing about a 1.5, you're really drunk. Like that's, that's impressive. But if we say it's zero, roughly zero at zero, okay? We'll call that then chance. Look what happens when you're a little over the legal limit. Right? It starts to go up. It's ten, it's ten times more likely. Uh, it's amazing that people can ever even drink that much. <laughs> you know, that's, geez, blowing like a 180, that's, that'd be the equivalent for, like, me, let's say. Well, I'm a bad example because I'm a chronic drinker. But, uh, no, no. That's probably the equivalent of about, because a point eight would give you in terms of it. That in an hour is drinking like 16 beers. It's very, way to go. Your parents are proud. Uh, of course, you're dead. So it doesn't really matter. So, I mean, this is it's a real thing. And the interesting thing is here, because unlike a lot of other drugs, we have data for, for drinking and driving. Because we have a way of measuring your blood alcohol. Uh, there's two ways to do this. With the guy who's dead, you actually literally just take a duty radio and you can ask his blood. Uh, but we can use a breathalyzer, right? So we have the data. I have no doubt that it's very similar for a whole lot of other drugs. This kind of curve. But we don't have a breathalyzer test for, for marijuana. We don't have a breathalyzer test for benzodiazepines. We have to do a blood test. Right? Of course, then again, people that are stoned tend to drive really slowly. <laughs> 10 kilometers an hour. So drinking and driving is a bad idea. It's a very bad idea. I know you've been told this. Here's a graph. This isn't just the this isn't just driver's education where they show you that nasty. Isn't it? Is this, they, they actually do this. They show you movies of people that die in car crashes. Yeah. They do that. Eh? All right. Cool. Kind of a horror kind of approach. I like it. I say again. I never had driving uh, education because you know, blind. My kid has autism. Um, <laughs> Questions about that? I mean, you've probably heard about this stuff before, but this is some actual data. All right. So we get a weakened connection, in essence, between cortical and motor uh, areas. So the cortex of your brain and controlling 
the rest of your body. This is probably a GABA-caused a GABA effect. So, and this is something, once you start something, it's hard to stop doing it. And this, this actually explains, like if I'm walking and I stumble just a little tiny bit, right? Just a little bit. I, I self-correct to the point where I don't even notice that I just stumbled a little bit, right? You know, like when you get used to a new pair of shoes, and you're just not used to them, and you sort of, it's no big deal. When you've been drinking, it becomes a lot harder to make that correction because it's like, normally, it's like, oh, no, no, just sort of self-correct, balance yourself. It's hard to do, so you end up falling over a lot more, things like that. And again, noticeable after a couple of beers. There's an old expression. It's clearly old because it's Latin. In we know where it is, and we know where it is. That means in wine, truth. There is truth. It is the ultimate truth serum. People will tell you things when they're drinking they would never tell you when they were not drinking. You know, you'll run into some guy in an airport bar that's afraid of flying, and he's an insurance salesman. The next thing you know, first of all, he's trying to sell you insurance, but he's also telling you how he's been cheating on his wife. And you met him 10 minutes ago. I can't believe I did this. I got to somebody. Yeah, but dude, I don't know who you are. Perhaps call your wife. Maybe you get a cup of coffee first. <laughs> People will, and these things are usually inhibited. We don't, we, if you have something that you're, it's bothering you, you're carrying it around, you kind of do want to tell somebody, but you don't because you've got enough inhibition in your nervous system saying, that guy doesn't want to know that. And this is where people make bad decisions with their drinking, right? And this is why the bartenders hear more confessions than uh, I think that's true, yeah. I mean, bartenders hear these things. I think uh, this is why you see people, uh, again, have, have like, extramarital sex and things like this, cheating their boyfriend, girlfriend, or husband, wife, or, or all four. Um, thank you. I never tired of that joke. Um, when they're drinking. Because it's like, oh, it's good, oh, what the hell? It's, you know. Or people will, like I said, tell you strange. I don't know, this is happening. If you do fly a lot, you go to an airport bar for a drink before a flight or something like that. People will. There are people that are hammered sitting in there, and they'll tell you stuff that they, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. Now, here's a question. You've probably heard this before. The worst day for spousal abuse in the United States is Super Bowl Sunday. Have you heard this? This is one of those things that's out there. And, of course, it's the drinking. And, you know, violent men doing violent things. Um, that's actually an urban myth. Um, it was perpetuated. You look this up on Snopes.com. If you ever see something that sounds like an urban myth, or someone sends you, or you see on someone's Facebook thing, that if you don't copy and paste this, you'll have to pay for Facebook. <laughs> First of all, those people shouldn't be allowed to use computers. <laughs> they shouldn't be allowed to use language. They should be put on an island. Okay, that's a little extreme. You watch, it'll come out now. If you don't do this, you'll be put on an island. You ever see that kind of thing, you should go to Snopes. And if you go to Snopes, <coughs> uh, you'll find out, in fact, this is a complete crock of shit. That it was literally made up. And then it was... Like so many things like this, they, it sounds good, 
It sounds sensible almost, doesn't it? It just isn't. Okay? So don't let, when you hear that, it just simply isn't true. Okay. You can probably see at this point, I mean, I'm pro-alcohol. I like the drinking. I think it's fun. I, 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 responsibly, it's great. Even sometimes irresponsibly. You're not driving. Don't have responsibilities the next day. It's perfectly, I, but it's a dangerous drug. So there's acute tolerance and chronic tolerance. Acute tolerance is while you're drinking, the next drink has less of an effect than the first drink does. Chronic tolerance is now you need more all the time. Um, one of the things that can happen, of course, with chronic use, and I mentioned the idea of the microsomal uh, ethanol oxidizing system, <coughs> it basically shuts down after chronic use. And that's not good because then you have more alcohol in your system and you can actually hurt yourself. Um, one of the big things is behavioral tolerance. And because alcohol is such a pervasive part of, well, at least Western society, many societies in general, we end up with people that are used to doing things while, they, while they're drunk. Uh, if you watch Mad Men and the guys are always drinking and... I remember, of course, before my dad died, because he couldn't tell me this after he died, that would be, that would be impressive, and there'd be a paper in there somewhere. Um, but I remember him saying, that, you know, working in the 1960s in offices was like that. You just drank in the afternoon. It was just something you did before a meeting. During a meeting, oh, it's a meeting, let's get out some scotch. It's not unlike how it works being a professor in Newfoundland. Um, in the psychology department, at least. So... It's interesting that people got used to doing things while drinking. And again, I think I've mentioned this, that many of us know someone who tells us they're an alcoholic, and we say, really? Yeah, I know you like to drink a lot. And they say, yeah, I was drunk all the time. Literally, in the morning, afternoon, really. So behavioral tolerance is pretty big. And I think this is probably just because it happens with pretty much all drugs. But I think the reason we know a lot about it here is because a lot of people use alcohol. Now you can have minor withdrawal. That's a hangover. If that's minor withdrawal, that should tell you something. Being somebody who's an alcoholic that has such, that drinks so much that they, that it's worse than a bad hangover. Those are pretty bad withdrawal symptoms. In fact, uh, when people who have had alcohol problems and heroin problems have been asked to compare the two, they all, almost to a person, say it's withdrawal from alcohol is much less pleasant than withdrawal from heroin. So this is like, minor withdrawal is a hangover. By the way, that should tell you something. In fact, there is a hangover cure, and that'd be having another drink. No, serious. It will put off your hangover for a while. If you can keep the alcohol down, right? And of course, if I give you a shot of vodka and you've got a hangover, you're going to go, oh, God, I'm puke. But if you, it actually will kind of work. My friend Ian used to have, a, when he had a hangover, he had an Oreo omelet and a, and a beer. I, you know, it's a different kind of person than I am. Oreo omelets. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not suggesting you do this. I'm saying it will put off your hangover. You're still going to get one. Major withdrawal is like 12 hours later uh, after stopping drinking. If you have, uh, if, 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 if you, you know, basically are one of these sort of chronic users, 
About 12 hours later, you'll end up with the DTs, delirium tremens. That is feeling like there are bugs crawling all over your body. That's the major part of the DTs. I'm guessing this is exceedingly unpleasant. <coughs> I've never known anybody that was like that. I've, I've known people with all kinds of drugs, but I, don't, I really have never been very well acquainted with anybody that had that kind of drinking problem and was still drinking. I know people that uh, don't drink anymore. But I don't know anybody like that, so I can't speak from personal experience watching this, but it must be ugly. And I've never experienced this. Again, and this probably has something to do with glutamate and the body basically making up for the fact that glutamate isn't working so well. Okay? That's probably what this is. So it's like you're getting overstimulated. Dave? Yeah, please. What's the MEOS again? Oh, microsomal uh, ethanol oxidizing system. Okay. It's the secondary alcohol uh, metabolic pathway, and with chronic use, it actually shuts down. So the only upside there is that people that are real drunks don't have to drink as much anymore, which isn't really an upside. All right. Rats will self-administer if their mother did. This was discovered by Lynn Honey, who is a professor of psychology at Grant McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta, and a graduate of Algoma University. And she was my TA for Psych 3256 one year, who then trained my next TA, Lori Bloomfield. <laughs> we, we tried to get Lynn to come back here, actually. My, our new policy is only people I've taught stats to can, can work here. It uh, works out pretty well. Now, how does this work? Sorry, I should uh, go over this. The way you get rats to self-minister alcohol, to actually drink alcohol, because if you give rats vodka, they just don't drink it. It's too bad. I don't know if Julie's sick. It's too bad because we could ask her. Maybe she could put a little, do a little experiment for us now she has to have rats. What about chocolate with They might try that. You know, that's a thought because rats do love chocolate. Chocolate, yeah, a little creme de cacao. <laughs> a little creme de cacao. By the way, on the, on the topic of creme de cacao, two shots of vodka, one shot of creme de cacao, one shot of sherry brandy. Shake it up in a shaker. Dump it out into a cola glass. Then put ice on it, pop with cola until it's full in a maraschino cherry, and you get a, you know what Black Forest cake is? Mm -hmm. it, you get Black Forest Coke. That's what you just made. Really? Yes. It's a drink invented by my father. Uh, a tremendous drink, and you should try it if you drink. If you don't drink, I wouldn't suggest starting with that. It's a little <laughs> intense. But it tastes like Black Forest cake. Sorry, what was that recipe? Okay, two shots of vodka, one shot of crimson cacao, one shot of cherry, cherry, cherry brandy. And then uh, crushed ice uh, in a cola glass, top it with Coke, and then put a maraschino cherry on top. And if you shake, and you shake it, get a little bit of foam, not with the Coke, that'll be a mess. You actually, it's like the icing of a cake. It's amazing. My dad invented that. My mom came up with the title, with the, with the, with the name. My dad did, a, one of the things my dad used to do was just invent drinks. Some were good, some were not good. The meat daiquiri <coughs> was a bad idea. And I'll tell that story perhaps a little later. What? The meat daiquiri. Uh, <laughs> meat or beef. You can, well, we use beef. Um, so what Lynn did, and this is work with Jeff Galef at McMaster for her, master, for her master's thesis. Like I said, you can't get rats to just drink alcohol. They just won't. But if you, can, if you force 
They won't do it by choice. If it's the only liquid available, they will drink small amounts. But, you know, that we want to get, be able to model human behavior. Even if you're a non-drinker, if the only liquid available was vodka, you'd start sipping vodka. Right? But that's not what we want. We want rats that will choose to drink. So we give the mother, we force the mother to drink alcohol. And we do it with the, it's the it's forced choice, the only thing available. We do that when she is nursing. Alcohol crosses the blood-brain barrier and crosses, and ends up also in, in, in mother's milk. So the young get a taste for the alcohol when they're very young. Now we give them the choice, they got water and alcohol in their home cage. And the young now, when they become adults, will choose alcohol now and then. Interestingly, they would typically choose it just before they would be fed, because they're fed at the same time every day. It was like they were having a couple of cocktails before dinner. Well, it's cocktail hour, Whiskers. Because, <laughs> of course, that's the high-end rats. That's how they talk. It's a weird mid-Atlantic accented rat. So rats, you, we can get them to do it. So you actually can sometimes model. And then Lynn was the first person to find this. Everyone else was literally just using the forced choice. And the question was, well, I can, make, I, I can force you, uh, you being a person, you being a rat. I can't do it if you're a person ethically. But I, I can force rats to eat hash brownies, you know, if I wanted to. Um, there are cultural effects on alcohol use, and you probably know this, where we have cultures that actually ban alcohol, right? Most Muslim countries, most, not all, uh, alcohol consumption is illegal, uh, or, or salient in many of them. Uh, and then there's others where they're a little more, you know, want to use the word liberal, and I'll just say that, though it's not meant to be a, a judgment thing. Um, Morocco, for example, you can buy alcohol. You can buy alcohol. In Algeria, you can't. I mentioned those two because Isabel travels over there and she's been to those two countries. Uh, Saudi Arabia, you can't get alcohol unless you live in a special compound where it's just Western oil workers. And then you can have it there but nowhere else. Right? So there are places that ban it, so there really is no alcohol. Well, there is no out in the open alcohol consumption. People can drink. The fewer that here, as you would imagine, is, it, is illegal. There are cultures that, we can even look at us, um, uh, Canadians versus Americans, we drink a lot more than Americans. And it's not just more uh, beer we drink, because it's, uh, that's the sort of stereotype, right? We drink more hard liquor and more wine as well than Americans. Uh, our beer consumption doesn't even come close to the Czech Republic, the world champions of drinking beer. Uh, Factory workers in the Czech Republic during their break are allowed to have a beer. Now, it's a pretty low alcohol beer. But it probably tastes better than most stuff that we, we have, like, you know, better than Lake Port. And again, I like Lake Port just fine. Just, it's just drinking beer here. You can look within, we can compare Western Europe to North America, where drinking laws are different, but also the acceptance of things like drinking wine is quite a bit different, where, where young kids will drink wine with dinner. No problem. In fact, indeed, it's even the case in, in Quebec. 
compared to the to the rest of uh, the country that there is more wine consumption, but also people drink younger. Um, and that's not just because the drinking age is 18. They will also drink you know, wine with dinner. But I mean, when you look at Western Europe, it's legal in many places to drink, drink wine or beer at 14. Right? And then some places it's 17 or 16. So there are huge cultural differences on how we view alcohol. Right. The interesting thing is, even places where it's banned, people still do drink alcohol. Like I said, alcohol's been with, we've been with alcohol almost as long as we've been with dogs. I mean, it's just part of being a human. Right. Uh, there are age effects. People tend to drink a little less as they get older. A couple reasons. You don't need as much to, to get drunk anymore. Uh, but also, frankly, um, you don't have as much free time. You know? You know, I don't know a lot of binge-drinking 50-year-olds. I, I do know some, right? But there are, it's, it's much less likely. There are sex effects, uh, men drink more than women. And again, women don't need to drink as much to get drunk anyway, so maybe that's a part of it. But generally, um, women don't drink as much as men. And that's pretty much cross-cultural. That may have something to do with risk-taking behavior uh, rather than anything else. Uh, consumption is affected by price and availability, of course. So we can look at liquor laws and see that consumption does increase when it's more available. And the way we can do this is by looking at changes in laws over time. Uh, in Ontario, it was the case up until the mid-1970s that when you went into the LCBO, they didn't have liquor out on shelves. Oh, no. No, you went in and you filled out a form that listed all the kinds of liquor and you handed it to like a clerk behind like a little window and he went in the back and got your liquor. Meanwhile, they sell it in the grocery stores in the States and we drink more than they do. Yeah. Uh, we can look within any connect, I mean, there's beer and wine, not, not, not uh, hard liquor, beer and wine in grocery stores. And also in grocery stores. And in Newfoundland, oddly enough, beer is sold in gas stations. And corner stores. A lot of corner stores are in gas stations. And when I first moved there, it was like, you know, this is almost encouraging drinking and driving. That's going into the ultraman to get some beer, right? Most of these shows are just for you, but I'm glad you enjoyed them. Jeez, um, you went to mud. Uh, so saying... If someone says, like, if we make beer and, uh, available in corner stores in Ontario, consumption will increase. Yeah, it probably will. Of course, one then ask, could ask the question, and why is that your business? As long as it's grown-ups that are drinking it. One thing I can say that is I, I notice no difference in how much I, uh, you know, I go to the beer store once a week, go to the liquor store once a week, got to stock up. Um, and I, back in Newfoundland, I would go to the Literally to the gas station. It was kind of cool going to Canadian Tire and buying beer, though. I've got to admit, I mean, they're very civilized somehow. Um, and this is totally anecdotal, obviously. But I know it's just as many people getting carded in, in, in the Ultramar, you know, as I, or at Canadian Tire, than I do at the beer store. So, 
because you make the penalties just obscene, right? You say if you're a clerk at a corner store and you serve a minor, you just get a $10,000 fine. Oh, okay, I'll guard people then. So consumption would increase. Um, price certainly affects it. And again, that's interesting. Within the country, we can see that, but if we compare us to the States where alcohol is cheaper, there's obviously something else going on there. Uh, in the States, you've got a lot more people that don't drink at all. That may have something to do with it. There's a lot more people that just don't drink at all. Not because of alcoholics, because it's a religious thing or something, typically. Alcoholism. I hate isms. Okay, this is where the disease model really comes from. And this is a guy named Jelinek uh, that came up with the idea of physical dependence to alcohol. Um, basically, the, alcohol, the, the disease of alcoholism and I'm putting that in, in, in air quotes, involves tolerance to alcohol, physical dependence to alcohol, a loss of control to alcohol. In other words, people, once they have a drink, they can't stop. And you may have heard this many times that someone's an alcoholic. They will say to you, no, I better not, because if I have one, I'm going to have 20. Right? And in fact, a lot of people, most people get counseled when they drink, don't ever touch alcohol again. <coughs> don't use wine in cooking. Right? Things like that, they're actually counseled that way. So they have a loss of control to alcohol. This is what the alcohol disease model looks like. Um, there is something called being family history positive. Uh, there, it certainly is the case that having a problem with alcohol does run in families. And you can look at twin studies, and identical twins are more likely to be alcoholic, both alcoholic, than uh, fraternal twins, for example which tells us something. Because both those kinds of twins have the same environment, but they have different genomes. Yeah. The differences here are pretty subtle, but they're, they're there. I mean, they're small differences. These aren't... You can't just pick an alcoholic out of a crowd like that by their family history. This isn't like PKU or something where you can just say, yeah, you've got... It's not going to be a single gene. <laughs> what the hell? Now, the problem here, of course, uh, well, we'll talk about that in a second. That's the idea. Alcoholism, this is the traditional notion of what alcoholism is. It's a physical dependence. It's tolerance to alcohol and a loss of control to alcohol. All right. So we'll come back to that. Uh, bad things that can happen when you drink. Uh, well, you drink so much that you actually, that the, the metabolites of alcohol, many of them are poisonous. So that's bad. That's a generic term, really, for sort of a small overdose. <laughs> uh, hangovers are bad. Right? I remember after my high school grad dance, we, I think I was hungover for three days. Uh, well, it was... Then again, I was also the legal drinking age, and, our, and our, it was 19, and it was grade 13 back then. We had a bar at our high school graduation. We were all, and then people that weren't of age, they gave them a wristband. People that were of age, whatever, something like that. You're buying your teacher's drinks, they're buying your drinks. It was very civilized. No, we were all grown-ups. We were done in school. It wasn't like it could affect your grades at that point. It all turned out okay, too. I don't know. 
just general bad behavior. Is, is, I mean, people, because of the disinhibition thing, people will fight, people will have unprotected sex with people that aren't their husband or wife or whatever. Um, these are all bad things. That, that coffee cup is still there. I cannot believe it. That's going to be a weapon of mass destruction at some point. This is general bad behavior. You know, people will fight when they're drinking. Right? And we know this. You, you, I think I mentioned this the other day that, you know, you're much more likely when two people bump into each other to say to somebody if you haven't been drinking, oh, sorry, man. And if you've had five or six drinks, you might say, oh, this is your problem. You want to go outside? I always love that, too, because it's a guy generally who is so hammered that you can go, you know, I could just knock you over like that. And it would be, and I'm, I can't see it. My, my son has autism. Um, I mean, this happened to me at the speakeasy once. I was the victim, not the purveyor of that behavior. I was standing there. I was just at the bar with Bill Lubegin, a history professor. We were both surprised two of us were drinking. Um, at the bar, getting beers. That's all we were doing, just getting a beer. A student comes up. This is about 2006, because I was teaching intro then, in the, in, the, in the winter. This guy comes up to me. This is psychology. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm your psychologist. <laughs> And I recognized him because he, you know, he sat close up. He said, <laughs> I said, yeah, okay, so you really probably should slow down on the drinks. And then he hit me. <laughs> he punched me in the face. Oh. Now, it wasn't very hard. He was so uncoordinated that it was more like a, like that. <laughs> and Bill looked at me and said, David, did that just happen? <laughs> I think that's a pretty good new beginning impression. I said, yeah. And a bouncer came over, and I, I said, just a second. And the bouncer said, okay. I said, um, and I talked to students this way. I said, son, there's two things I could do right now, and I'm sure I could do them. I could fail you, and I could kick the shit out of you. I'm not going to do either of them, though, because i got a feeling you're never going to be allowed back in this bar again, and I think you're kind of in trouble. Hard to get in trouble in university, but I think you're in trouble. <laughs> Three days later, I got an email from the guy. Dear Dr. Brodbeck, I'm sorry. Turned out uh, somebody told me I punched you in the face. See, like, again, it was one of these brown blackouts. They didn't even know he was doing it. But that's really bad behavior. You shouldn't hit your professors. In general, I'm just saying as a pro tip, don't hit us. This is just a lovely... And we all have seen wonderful examples of people just doing stupid things when they're drinking. People will have sex with people that, that they have no business having sex with. Uh, you could have sex with your liver. No, that doesn't follow. I, well, your liver's doing all this uh, work. And one of the things that happens, actually, is that you end up, you know why people have beer guts? I don't, I'm still. But why people have beer guts, basically, is fat gets built up around the liver from it working so much. The same way, what you're basically doing is making human foie gras. Which is delicious with the uh, Chianti and fava beans. Anybody? Some of you got that? Good, I'm glad. That's nice. Okay. It's an old movie, but I'm glad you got the reference. Korsakoff syndrome. This is a very bad thing. This is when you actually get brain damage to the point where you end up with amnesia. People used to think it was literally because the alcohol was destroying your brain. You've heard this alcohol kills brain cells. It's not really true. 
Um, that was made up by prohibitionists, by the Women's Christian Temperance Union. No, I'm serious. That's who made that up. What actually happens in Korsakoff is people that drink to excess all the time and, and devote their lives to it, they don't eat. Because that, that's wasting valuable drinking time, right? So they don't eat not enough, and it's a vitamin B deficiency. Now, you can't treat it. You can't just give people shots of vitamin B. Once you've got brain damage from Korsakoff, you've got it for the rest of your life. It's a sad thing because these people didn't have to drink this much. You know, it's all this kind of stuff. So it, it's kind of depressing. I've met people with Korsakoff's and they're, um, what they do is a lot of confabulating. What that means, a lot of people that have amnesia do this. You ask them a question and what they do is they sort of make stuff up. They don't really realize they're making it up. They use cues in the environment. Right? Like someone might say, like I see, for example, there's at least what? at least from my perspective, and then this one here, there's, there's four, three mats here, okay, so I can see apples. So you might say, what did you have to eat today? And they don't remember, of course, and they look and they go, I had an apple. What do you do for a living? They look around here. Oh, I, I, go, to, I go to school. And maybe they don't. Right. I taught a person a couple years ago, of course, the cops. That was quite a challenge. I'll just say it was a challenge. I'm not sure how she did. We were team teaching, of course, but it was really something. She certainly was putting the work in. Pretty hard to learn stuff when you've got amnesia. You can't learn new stuff. So the interesting thing, as I said, it's not the alcohol per se that's causing the problem here. What's causing the problem, in fact, is the uh, lack of vitamin D. So it's the actions that come from the alcohol. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly what it is, yeah. Uh, there's also fetal alcohol syndrome or fetal alcohol effects. Um, I don't want to go too much into this because there's going to be a, a presentation and a paper on this, but fetal alcohol syndrome is, this is when a mother drinks enough that it's, this is professional drinking by a mother who's pregnant. <coughs> okay? And this leads to cognitive problems with the kid, uh, behavioral problems. These are cognitive problems that can't be fixed. They can be kind of managed a bit. A lot of behavioral problems too, uh, usually a lot of violence, aggression. A part of that is because the kid can't understand stuff. A part of that is because the kids just seem to be violent. Also, physical things. You can spot people with fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, their eyes tend to be too close together. Uh, this thing underneath your nose, I, I would never know what that thing's called, that little line. They don't have it. I don't know what's called, though. Oh, Isn't that cleft? No, that's, that's cleft is your chin. You know, Kirk Douglas. <laughs> My brother has one. I call him ass chin. <laughs> <laughs> Is it called the filtrum or something? Yes, yes, filtrum. That's it. I'll forget again next time I have to talk about this, but I'm glad that somebody knew. <laughs> then there's fetal alcohol effects. This is sort of a mild version of fetal alcohol syndrome. If something if such mild. This is what's led to people saying pregnant women should never drink. Because we don't know what the safe level of alcohol consumption is for a pregnant woman. That said, um, having the odd glass of wine or the odd beer is probably fine. Because you know what? That's what most of our mothers did because we didn't know about this yet. Right? Especially people like my generation. Again, if you watch Mad Men, the mothers are all, they're, they're, they're pregnant, they're just drinking and smoking all the time. Um, 
If you see a woman who's pregnant having a drink, don't look at her like she's worse than Hitler, please. Very few of you have ever been pregnant. There's a little bit of stress there. The odd drink isn't hurting anybody. Stop being such a judgmental asshole. I hate it. I really, really hate that. Now, if you see her doing, you know, playing beer pong. Or shots. Yeah, yeah, you know, doing like six shots. Yeah, maybe that's the time to think, oh boy, it's not good. But a glass of wine when she's at a restaurant, and I've seen this. I remember my wife being pregnant. And people like look over. Wait, what's your fucking problem? <laughs> I mean, I said that to the person. I'm not, I shouldn't have said it here. And I'm not editing it out. This is for fair similitude. Yes, I swear, damn it. <laughs> Sorry, I really shouldn't have used that word. Shit happens, but... Uh, does it lead to cancer? Uh, there is conflicting results... Sorry, conflicting ideas. There's a school of thought that said uh, chronic alcohol consumption leads to pancreatic cancer. Uh, most recent data say not really. But it's, it's, it's an open question a little bit. Um, there was data in the early, I think, 90s that came out saying, yeah, you, you, it increases your likelihood of getting pancreatic cancer by 20%. Wow. And pancreatic cancer is one of them ones that you just die. Like, you might live five years and keep running Apple, but that's one guy. Most people, that's Steve Jobs, pancreatic cancer. Uh, most people die within six, eight months of the diagnosis. I guess it's really nasty. Um, so the thing is, it may not. More recent data are suggesting that, no, it's probably not the alcohol so much. Good stuff. Oh, there's good stuff in drinking. Hey, it doesn't lead to heart disease. Moderate use of alcohol reduces the likelihood of you getting heart disease. Again, moderate. A drink a day. Drink a day. There are data now suggesting, now questioning this, but I mean, this has been medical consensus for like 20 years, so. The stuff literally just came out uh, kind of questioning this, but it's, it's one paper versus tons of meta-analyses and that, so I'll still say this is safe. Originally it was thought it was just like the tannins in red wine that was doing this. Okay, so people have red wine. Because there's a whole set of people that live in um, uh, France and uh, uh, Italy that really don't seem to have as much heart problems as we do here, but, and they, they eat more fat than we do. You know? Um, yet they have fewer problems with heart disease. And people sort of saying, well, maybe it's the red wine. Well, what it could be, it could be the tannins. And then people say, well, then it's, then it's beer, because beer, especially dark beer, has tannins in it. And now it turns out, Gin is good for you. Again, in small amounts. <coughs> so one martini is okay. That'll help you. Seven isn't. Well, what if you don't drink throughout the rest of the week? Will it help you if you drink? Oh, just save them up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, I think that's part of the reason that we don't we tell pregnant women, or we being a medical establishment tells pregnant women you can't drink. Because there is not nearly as much in our culture a culture of having a drink, having a glass of wine. Our culture is I'm going drinking. A lot more. So I think they're, they're, I think the fear among physicians is if they told people you could have a drink every day or every two days, there'd be really dumb people that go, that means I could save them up. <laughs> you know. I really honestly, I, I think that's, that's part of it. Um, and we don't know what the safe amount is. But I mean, I've heard MDs literally recently 
um, talking about this. Uh, there's a pretty good uh, medical discussion show on CBC, White Coat, Black Art. It's pretty cool. And he was saying that he tells patients now that are pregnant, look, you can have a drink now and then. It's not going to hurt anybody. You know, don't have a lot of them. And you can't save them up. So a couple of drinks a day is actually good for you. A couple. And that's, a couple is if you're a, a man and kind of a, you know, like a 175, 185-pound man. Right? If you're a little tiny woman, maybe one. Or a little tiny man. But especially women, because women can't drink as much as men, on average. How do we treat alcohol problems? Well, Alcoholics Anonymous is the, is the, is the biggest one out there. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, is effective about, see if I remember the numbers, it's 60 odd percent of people going to AA don't drink again. Which is not that different from the number of people that quit cold turkey. So it might tell you something that Alcoholics Anonymous, while it seems to be helping people, and I'm not going to trash it, it does seem to do some good for some people, it may not be any better than cold turkey. I think it's probably easier than cold turkey, though, on the person, because you have other people for social support. They used to treat it with antidepressants. <laughs> people are still trying this. Uh, it seems a little... This is going to the idea that people are drinking because they're depressed, and they're self-medicating. And in fact, the data suggests that people don't self-medicate like that. Because if that was the case, depressed people should be taking cocaine, shouldn't they? Right? Because they should try to get up. People that are manic should be drinking. But the, the data don't actually fit. Sort of, sort of weird psychodynamic kind of idea that, well, you must be depressed. So take these antidepressants, which aren't good with alcohol, by the way. Behavior therapy's been tried. Um, a lot of interesting behavior therapies. Um, associating the smell, taste, look of alcohol with something negative, like smelling rotten hamburger. It's a nasty smell. That's, that's why it's, it's sometimes used by behavior therapists. Is that where that um, anti comes in? Then? Same idea. Uh, anti-abuse, immediately, uh, you take a drink of alcohol and you get very na nastily uh, uh, nauseous and, and vomit and things. The thing is, all you have to do to start drinking again is stop taking those pills every day. So. But yeah, it's the idea. People try cold turkey, and in fact, that's what most people do. They say, I've got to stop drinking, I'm drinking too much. And they do. The interesting thing about AA is that it goes with the disease model. It says you can't ever drink again and all that stuff. Though the, the data seem to suggest, in fact, that a reasonable goal for someone who has a drinking problem is to go back to being literally a social drinker, someone that can have one or two drinks and no more. What's often used nowadays is along with these sort of behavior therapies and therapy ideas, is a contract is written up. So it's called contracting. And what you do is the therapist says, look, if you're caught drunk again, we're going to start, we're going to have consequences to that behavior. And you're going to sign this document saying that if you're caught drunk again, you've got to tell your kids you're an alcoholic. You've got to tell your coworkers you're not. So basically, we're going to embarrass you. There's going to be consequences if you do this again. And that's actually really effective. And it was originally tried with uh, cocaine use uh, in California in the 70s and 80s. A lot of people doing cocaine, and these people can't come up with this idea. Well, it's actually legal, of course. So you just say, well, you tell your boss. 
and agree to this. And we're going to give you, drug, you know, random drug tests. And when you're caught, you have to go tell your boss. I got a coke problem. That stops people from taking coke. And this is this has actually been somewhat effective with alcohol as well. That actually makes a lot of sense. It does, and I mean, it, because the behavior has consequences, right? Because if you say to yourself, "I'm going to quit drinking," or "I'm going to quit taking cocaine," or whatever. And if there's no consequences of you doing it, except you feeling kind of like, oh, I can't believe I screwed up. When there's real life, real world consequences, like you've got to call your parents and tell them that you suck. Right? You know, or you've got to call your parents and say, you remember that time all that money was missing when I was a teenager? It's because I stole it all so I could buy liquor. That's a tough thing to do even if you're in your 40s. Right? It would be to tell your parents that, you know, remember when we were out a thousand bucks and you couldn't, it's because I had to, I I needed more liquor. (laughs) Questions about alcohol before we move on to the, now let's see if we can, oh, see, that's why, it's because it's so small. It's an itty bitty slideshow. Oh, yeah, now I gotta open the other one up. All right, the question about alcohol. Small too. What are we doing? Oh, I know why. Okay, now I know why it's happening. So now I'm happy. All right, let's talk a little bit about benzodiazepines and barbiturates. Um, along with methamphetamine, uh, sorry, methaquilone, um, and methylbenzene. You don't see these anyway. That's, <coughs> that's quaaludes. They were a big street drug in the seventies. Meprobamate, so it's hard to say. These are in what are called the sedative, hypnotic, and tranquilizer category. <coughs> sedative, they call me down hypnotic, they put you to sleep. That's what that means. Hence the name. They're tranquilizers. Basically, they seem to alter, we not seem to, we know how these work. Uh, they alter the uh, effectiveness of GABA, which is, of course, the universal inhibitory neurotransmitter. And alcohol seems to do this, and when we talk about inhalant abuse, um, it seems to do this too. Oh, don't worry, I'll just give you a little something to calm you, just to calm you down. Sorry, it says they facilitate <coughs> the functioning of gas, Yeah, it makes it, makes it work, work better. better. Yeah, okay. which means that you get more inhibition. And we may not get there today, but you can see, well, you'll eventually see how this works because they do this. We understand how that works, which is cool. So it's not like alcohol. It's like, I don't know. Uh, Barbiturates basically replace things like opium and brandy for MDs, for use as anesthetics. At first, uh, MDs, well, a long time ago, they would use wine because they hadn't invented distillation yet. <coughs> and then brandy. Uh, medics in, in wars used to carry, uh, well, usually it was a medic, it was a your sergeant, would, would, would carry brandy with it. And it was used simply as an anesthetic. Drink enough, and then we can operate on you. Take the bullet out. Right? They usually had a thing of brandy and a little case of maggots. The maggots for um, clearing up the blood clotting and eating up, eating away rotten flesh. Yeah, battlefield medicine's a lot better than it used to be. And then opium came along and they give people opium. 
right? This is uh, the American Civil War. Uh, soldiers suddenly started living through battlefield amputations and things like that because they didn't go into complete shock when they were having their leg cut off because they were full of opium. Right. Of course, this led to an incredible morphine problem in the United States so after the war. And then eventually we ended up with barbiturates, things like um, sodium pentothal, uh, stuff like that, replaced it. And phenobarbital is still used uh, to prevent seizures. So if, uh, it's an anti-seizure medication. It's one of them. You, you, this isn't necessarily the one you get if you've got, say, epilepsy. But it'll be given to people um, as a drug when they're likely to have a seizure. Um, benzodiazepines, on the other hand, were discovered by brute force. Uh, this is, there's a lot of ways to make drugs. One of the ways to make drugs is to keep making molecules and see if they have any effect. And what you do is you find a molecule that has, that's going to be similar to another molecule. And the reason we talk about benzodiazepines and barbiturates in the same topic is they're pretty similar. So what these guys were doing is they were trying to make something that was like a barbiturate. By the way, it's barbiturate, not barbiturate. I don't know why people mispronounce it that way all the time. It drives me crazy. Nuclear. You know, so it's like it's not quite that bad because you should really know that one. They discovered Valium. So it's basically brute force. It's like, let's make another molecule. Let's see if it has an effect. Let's make another molecule. They, people don't tend to do things like that so much anymore because now what we would do is we would look at the shape of a receptor and say, let's make a molecule that fits. But this was back in the, in the, in the 40s, eh? Um, then we got things like Rohypnol, uh, which uh, is typically, we, 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 we call that what? Mexican Valium. Roofies. Right? Which is, I want to make a point here because I read a thing about this a couple years ago. Rohypnol is a real thing. And it, there is a possibility of people getting dosed in a drink. It's true. It happens. It really does happen. But on the other hand, very often when people end up drinking so much they black out, police will blame that, even if there's no evidence for overtime. No blood test was done, whatever. And when you go back and look, and this was done by a reporter for a BBC reporter a few years ago, went through every case in the UK and a very small percentage actually really were rohypnol, really it was people drinking too much. I'm not saying it's the fault of the victim to get raped. That's wrong. It's just morally, ethically, and legally wrong. What I'm telling you this for is I don't think people should always be so damn paranoid Walk around with their glass with their hand over it. And I know you're taught to do that, women, right? You're taught that. You're told, oh, don't leave a drink out. Always put your hand over it. Don't be so paranoid, please. I don't think it helps anybody. Does it happen? Yes. But I remember living in Cornerbrook and there was a case. Suddenly there were these, basically, these young women were raped. It was horrible. And the police immediately came out and said it was a real hip dog with no evidence at all. It must be. And it's like, where do these things happen? Oh, at bars. People were drunk. That's a simpler explanation. 
I'm just trying to tell you this because I know it's a real thing, and I know people are afraid about it, and you shouldn't be afraid of things. It's like, you shouldn't be afraid of everything. It's a bad policy. It's a bad policy. Not a way to live. Not a way to live at all. Like people never flying again after 9-11. Yeah, it's like that. I mean, it's not, it's not as unlikely as an air crash, which is, air crashes are, I know all about air crashes. I mentioned my son with the autism. He's obsessed, actually, with air crashes. So I know all about airplane crashes. Not as much as John, but I know a whole lot about them. It's, this, it's safer than walking. It's literally safer than walking, flying in an airplane. There are more people, percentage-wise, killed walking each year than in plane crashes. So it's safe. <coughs> It's not like that. I mean, this is a real danger, but it's not the danger it's made out to be. That's sort of the point I'm trying to make. I don't think young women should be paranoid everywhere they go. Um, I think you should always be careful, but should you constantly, you know, I wouldn't leave my drink anywhere because someone might drink it. Like, finish your drink and go to the bathroom. That's one thing. Right? Who are these people leaving their drinks at? That's, that's sort of, that's always been my question. So it's a real thing, but it isn't nearly as, it's almost like, it's almost like people, young women are being told that there are, it, it, most men carry Rohypnol, and at the slightest drop of a hat, they'll put it in your drink. You know, and that's not a way to live, and it's also a freaking lie. There are bad people. They will do this. This is also, by the way, a completely legal and normal drug. It's, a, it's just a, it's a barbiturate, okay? What's it used for, for the good? Oh, it's an anti-seizure medication. Things like that. Yeah, tranquilizer. Oh, no, it's a barbiturate, not a benzodiazepine. Because yeah. it's got all. Now, again, I, I'm not... I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying it's not a real thing, but what I'm saying, and it's not a real thing that happens to people. <coughs> it's just that a lot of the cases when people, when it's, that's what it, people drank too much. And that's not shifting the blame to anybody. It's still the rapist's fault when someone rapes somebody. Yeah, because by legal standards, isn't it as soon as you're too intoxicated to make this? I honestly don't know about the law, uh, but I do know that it's immoral, unethical, and illegal to rape somebody. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I can say that pretty, pretty clearly. As soon as you have a drink, technically speaking, you have, you don't have the legal capacity to say yes. That, that, may, that may be true. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. That seems a little bit draconian, but yeah, that's probably true. Um, like I said, it's a real thing. And it's, it's a horrible thing. I've got a daughter. It's not like I'm an idiot here. But I, she doesn't have autism either. Um, it all comes back to John's autism somehow. Administration, if you want a rapid effect, you go with intravenous. Uh, so if you're using this uh, as, a, as a sedative to calm someone down, or maybe as anti-seizure meds, or uh, when someone's seizing, things like that, you might go with IV. Longer term, you would go with a pill. Right. And now, if this is seizure medication you're taking at a very low level to prevent seizures, you're going to go with a pill. You're not going to go with IV because you can't go around the world carrying an IV bag, right? So you take a pill. Or it's being used, I mean, uh, a lot of times, I think I mentioned this, uh, 
uh, diazepam is used with chemo a lot of times to, so, so people don't remember, don't associate the sickness from chemo with the hospital because they kind of have to go to the hospital don't make it a worse experience um, because there is this sort of weird memory effect kind of like with alcohol. So you use a pill there as well. Uh, in 30 minutes, diazepam, so Valium, will actually have its peak uh, concentration. So it's absorbed very quickly. And absorption from the digestive system is greatly increased by the presence of alcohol. It's a superadded effect. This probably has to do with the uh, fact that the meos is used. So it gets absorbed more quickly, so it gets taken up more quickly. So you get drunker than you'd be. find something good over there. I found an umbrella once. Did a little singing in the rain before I was recording them, unfortunately. Well, or fortunately, if you've ever heard me sing. It's a great deal of variability in the various benzodiazepines and barbiturates. So there are ones that take three hours to hit their peak. Five hours. And there are ones that take 30 minutes. Okay. Because we're talking about a whole class of drugs here, not a single drug. Like when we talk about alcohol, we're talking about one drug. Right? When we talk about, later on, when we talk about, say, THC, we're talking about one drug. When we talk about opiates, we're really talking about one drug. It's morphine. All these things are basically versions of morphine. Here we've got a whole class of drugs. <coughs> so there's a great deal of variability. They all work the same way, just like the um, absorption rate is slower or, or longer. Uh, and, I was gonna, and you might ask, how would that work? Well, the more lipid-soluble ones go through the brain, blood brain barrier more quickly. Okay. Um, they, re they get redistributed also to fat cells. So you end up with this interesting biphasic curve. So what you get is, uh, this would be from one dose, okay? You get absorption. Absorption and then excretion, and then they're redistributed in the fat cells where they're going to get released again, and then a little more absorption, and then it goes out. These kind of biphasic effects aren't uncommon in drugs. And many of the metabolites are also psycho uh, psychoactive, which is kind of cool. So you break it down, and the stuff you're breaking down is also a drug. Good times. They also, they also cross the placental barrier, too. No, they also cross the placental barrier. You're saying I'm redundant? I repeat myself? I say things over and over again? I'm going to fix that right now, because that's just embarrassing. So they, it, they cross the placental barrier as well, and two, they must, yes. Um, That was embarrassing. 
And now we shall never know. We will never speak of this again. All right. Uh, maybe one more slide. Yep. Um, what this does physiologically is it modifies the effect of GABA. Yeah, this is sort of the important slide anyway. Well, it's not the important. It's one of the important. GABA lets chlorine in, right? It's, it's a, uh, that neurotransmitter, unlike most of the other ones, which lets sodium in, this lets chlorine in. This makes the next neuron have more of a negative charge for a while, so it's harder to make it fire. So it's a positive GABA modulator. That's what these things are. They make GABA more effective. That's actually saying the same thing. Okay, so if you, that didn't make sense to you, that's what that means. Barbitrates can actually open the ion channel themselves at high enough concentrations. So here's a diagram. So what we have here is a, a barbiturate a GABA uh, receptor complex, okay? So here's your chlorine channel. There's a GABA receptor. There's a barbiturate receptor and a benzodiazepine receptor, okay? So what happens here is the dashed lines mean that they can make this work more efficiently. So it'll grab, in essence, grab GABA better and more attractive to it. Which, and I'm just going to leave that for now because there's, yeah, I'll just say that. So what happens then is if we get a benzodiazepine binding to this receptor, it then makes the GABA receptor sort of be more, be more attractive in essence, which then opens the chlorine ion channel. Same thing happens with barbiturates. The weird thing is about barbiturates, if you have enough in the system, they'll actually open that ion channel by themselves. That's why you have a solid line on this diagram. So they can actually be pretty dangerous. They can both be dangerous. We can see the barbiturates probably more dangerous than benzodiazepines. If they can actually open an ion channel, uh, one, and one that sh slows you down, there's a problem with drugs that slow you down. They can slow you down so much that you don't speed back up ever again. Right? You can see then why these things make excellent tranquilizers. Right? It just makes sense. It slows you down. Any questions? Um, just yeah. when you said it crosses the placental barrier, yes. what's the effect on the fetus? Uh, it, it acts the same way as that in a fetus nervous system. So it can potentially kill the fetus? Oh, you need a lot of little fetus. Oh. But it, will, it could affect the fetus. The fetus could be born with the dependence of barbiturates or benzodiazepines. You know, it's, a, it's not a very nice way to. Well, well, welcome to Earth. Don't worry that the hangover will be over shortly. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, could you, yeah, uh, you'd have to probably take enough to overdose yourself to that happen. In that case, the kid's going to die anyway. Yeah, but that, that's just a guess. All right. Thanks, guys.
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.